in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There, our Genesis foundation sprang from the will and word of the great I Am. Woven deep into these foundations are rich truths of God and man, sin and righteousness, life and death, and everything else of ultimate consequence. What God started in Genesis is now settled and completed in Christ Jesus. We start here, Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. Foundations. As we begin our examination of these early chapters of Genesis, there is no segment of God's word that is more thoroughly attacked, ridiculed, demeaned, demoted, deliberately misunderstood, distorted. There's no segment of God's word that is subject to more ridicule and attack than these early chapters of Genesis. The world out there, as you may have noticed, doesn't really mind if you have kind thoughts and words about something you call God. You can use all kinds of, of God rhetoric and the world will smile and nod and play along. In, in most quarters, at least in, in our region, you can even say kind things about, about Jesus, or at least someone you call Jesus, and again, you will find that to be largely accepted and acceptable. But you start taking positions that affirm the simple, straightforward, as written truthfulness of these early chapters of Genesis. And they'll tell you you're nuts. There is no tolerance that God would be as he says he is and do what he said he did in the way in which he said he did it. Oh, I can't have that. 
The moment was captured for me when, and I'll, I'll probably tell this story in some future podcast, for those of you who've not heard my testimony and not heard me tell it, I had a had a, something of a, a crisis in my own faith. I've been saved since just before I turned 10, but I had something of a crisis in my own faith as I began college and encountered the systematic teaching of evolution in an orderly way for the first time in a, in a secular university setting. And I came through a bit of a crisis in my own faith, came out of that crisis all the more convicted that God's word is true and that God is the author of origins of the universe, earth, and mankind in exactly the way he says he was. During that period in my life, I was 18, 19 years old, I, uh, I was visiting a great aunt of mine who has since passed away, a, a dignified woman she was, and she really was. I loved her a lot. My grandfather Howard's sister, and I remember sitting with my, my aunt and, and describing with excitement how, uh, how liberating and solidifying it, how it was for my faith to have come to renewed, settled, better informed convictions that God made the earth in six days like he said he did. And it was not all that long ago as Genesis describes and that mankind was created originally from nothing, from dust, man and woman in a garden of Eden and that they fell in sin the way the Bible says it happened. And she looked at me and she said, oh, Russell, you used to be so intelligent. You'll hear that a lot if you believe Genesis as it presents itself. So, I offer you this as we, as we begin the notes. First thing on your notes in this series on foundations, whatever you believe, whatever you believe about the origins of our universe, our world, and us, you believe by faith. I mean, you weren't there. You, you cannot claim empirical knowledge of the origins of the universe or the origins of life or the origins of humankind. Whatever you do believe, you believe by faith. I remember one time not, uh, well, it's been a few years ago, I was, I was uh, doing some adjunct instructing. I taught, actually, I taught philosophy and comparative religions in one of our community uh, colleges here in town. Now, they knew who I was, and I warned them that I, I cannot teach other than from what I believe. Now, that doesn't mean I can't teach about things I don't believe. In, in philosophy and comparative religions, lots of opportunity to do that and do it honestly and fairly. Anyway, I'm teaching that course, and we got, in a philosophy course, we got to the, the issue of empiricism. And one of the gentlemen in the class, it was a community college, older people, typically adults, taking night classes, and one of the guys in the class said, well, I just, I don't do faith. I only believe what I believe empirically, what I absolutely can't believe. I don't, I don't do faith. And I said, well, I'm a, then I'm assuming you keep a chemical test kit in your car. And he said, huh? I said, well, you, you, you pump clear fluid into your car all the time. I'm assuming you test to make certain that it's gasoline before you actually put it in your car because the world's full of a lot of clear fluid. He said, well, of course not. And I said, so you pump by faith and not by sight. <laughs> I 
You drove over a bridge this morning and you're not a structural engineer that's made a recent examination of that bridge. You drove by faith. In that sense, whatever you believe about origins, you believe by faith. And therefore, my second statement on the notes, more pointedly, what you must ask is what or who most informs and shapes that faith? That my friend, is a critically important question because in your internal makeup, in what you believe on the crucial matter of origins, you either say, well, I know what the Bible says, but, you know, the National Geographic Society and the Smithsonian Institution and the Discovery Channel and, and the geology department at the university where I went and blah, 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 blah. So I have to take the Bible and I have to view it through all of these lenses that have no interest whatsoever in honoring the living God who is. The Bible must be interpreted in light of what the naturalistic scientists tell us. Oh. Or what we think we see in the natural sciences must be brought to heel and made to kneel before the pronouncements of the God who is. Who's the last word on first things? in your own framework? I believe that's an important question. Because we live our lives around here on a foundation of thinking biblically. And if God is throwing mythology at us, which he packages as and purports to be truth, then you can't purport, you cannot purport to hold the Bible to be utterly trustworthy. That's where I was before I came through a blessed crisis in my own faith those decades ago. Well, the attack starts, Roman number one, on the authorship of Genesis. The authorship of Genesis. You see, you see, scholars believe. I don't know why scholars are always British and a bit foppish, but, but scholars believe. In the late 19th century, there was popularized, it had been lurked around before, but two, two German theologians, Drs. Graf and Wellhausen, postulated that... Um, in spite of the fact that the Old Testament and the New Testament repeatedly attributes the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, are the books of Moses. They're referred to that repeatedly in the Old Testament. They're called that repeatedly in the New Testament. Jesus quotes from these books and attributes his quotes to Moses. Did not Moses teach you? Has not Moses said? The, Moses wrote it. That's the shorthand under authorship. Just write Moses and we're done. But you are flying in the face. By the time we get into the 20th century, Groff, Drs. Groff and Wellhausen, the Groff-Wellhausen hypothesis. You've been exposed to that particular toxic 
chain of scholarship. You may have learned of their body of silliness under the name the documentary hypothesis. I sound more intelligent just saying it, especially when I say it with a beard. <laughs> Pitiful little beard that it is. <laughs> Dr. Groff and Dr. Wellhausen popularized the view that the Pentateuch was a hodgepodge, crazy quilt, written by a bunch of unnamed sources down a bunch of different centuries, and finally, by the time of Jesus, loosely stitched together in a crazy and pretty much unreliable form. That's the documentary hypothesis. I am blessed to have attended a seminary that taught and believed the word of God. One of my Old Testament professors, in fact, my main one was a, a Dr. David Skinner, and I have offered in the resources a book by Skinner that I hope you'll get and read. At any rate, I was in class, second or third day of Old Testament survey early in my seminary career when Dr. Skinner stood up at the beginning of a study of the book of Genesis and said, some of you might have some questions about Dr. Graf and Dr. Wellhausen and their work. And I think in order to clarify those questions, we ought to go to the source. So I have arranged to put in a call to Dr. Groff and Dr. Wellhausen, and he turned around to the then, I guess it was probably still a chalkboard. It may have been a whiteboard. I don't remember. And, and some, of you don't, some of you remember phones mounted on walls, right? He, he, he pretended to go to the phone mounted on the wall and enter a series of numbers, and he said, yes, this is David Skinner. I'd like to talk, if I may, to Dr. Groff and Dr. Wellhausen. We have some questions. Yes, I'll hold. They're going to go see if they can get them to the phone. Oh, all right, I understand. And he went back to the wall and he hung up. He said, they tried to get Dr. Groff and Dr. Wellhausen, but they said that the phone lines to where they are keep burning down. <laughs> that is all you need to know about anything but Moses wrote the Pentateuch. All right, nice and simple. Roman numeral two, not just the authorship, but the authority. This is where the crux of the matter is. Remember, what is informing, shaping, regulating your view regarding origins? These accounts, the accounts of creation, the fall, the flood, Babel, these foundations are a real stress test for your view of sola scriptura. Your view of scriptural authority in the 21st century will be stress-tested by your response to these biblical historical narratives. And you will be offered various alternatives. Now, I want to, I want to pause for a second and be charitable. The guys up top love it when I come to the floor. I'm sorry, guys. Just want to talk for a second. <laughs> any, any, any statement or question that contains the words, what does our church believe? Or, or our church believes. And you're going to finish that statement. You must go to the church's confession of faith. The Baptist faith and message from the year 2000 with some additional language that's in our constitution. Our constitution, our covenant, 
Those are what our, our confession, those are what our church believes. Our church confession does not tighten the understanding of the book of Genesis and creation as tightly as I wish it did. I want to confess that to you right away. Similar to when I taught my view on the end times a couple of Januaries ago over in the fellowship hall, I'm honest enough and I am submitted to this body of Christ because I'm a part of this body of Christ. We are submitted together to Jesus. Um, so if you, if you hold to one of the positions I'm about to poke at, I bet you and I could have poked at each other's positions before. These positions are problematic. Somewhere out there, if you've got Coke, an abundant supply of Coke Zero and a lot of time, I'd like to personally talk you out of any of these positions that you hold. But I, I cannot say our church believes just because I am strongly convicted about something. I do not have that right. That is not the church that you have designed in your church constitution. And I want to be candid about that. I want to be truthful about that. I want to be charitable about that. Then I want to play with some of these goofy, erroneous positions. <laughs> Best of both worlds. One position that, that isn't permissible is theistic evolution. Theistic evolution is the view, the broad view that, that, yep, here we are and we're here because God put us here, but the means whereby he did it was all the nonsense of Darwinianism, neo-Darwinianism, post-Darwinianism, whatever Indianism you want to buy into. God did it, but he used evolution. That's bad evolutionism and it's bad theology. It calls itself theistic evolution. It's a terrible example of both. You, you cannot hmm, take seriously the origin claims of the word of God and hold to a, a evolution model where we progress from the goo to the zoo to you. <laughs> they are fundamentally incompatible. They just are. And I invite you, some of the resources that I've, I've offered and some I will continue to offer would, would help you think clearly about the truthfulness of the Bible in the terms of creation. Theistic evolution. God, God used evolution to do it. Well, then God is a liar. And you're in a corner. The gap theory. The gap theory and the day-age theory, letter C on your outline, those two have in common the, the basic assumption, the first assumption is we've got to have a whole, 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 whole long period of time. When I was in high school, it was millions. I understand now we're up to billions. Now, I don't know. But we have to have some gazillions of years to account for the world as we experience it. And because we know that's true, as assumption number one, we must therefore deal with Scripture in a way that conforms Scripture to what we know from sources outside of Scripture. Do you hear what just happened to your view of scriptural authority if you do that? 
I mean, at least tell the truth about it. Something besides scripture has authority over scripture in both of these views. The first view is the gap theory. The gap theory holds it somewhere tucked into these first couple of verses of Genesis. There's a gap of a few bazillion years. After God creates the world, and while the earth is without form and void, a few gazillion years pass, accounting for the, the, the rise and fall of dinosaurs and accounting for all kinds of other things. Couple of problems with that. First, the word void in verse two means sterile. It means lifeless. And so that, that moment when the raw material of creation is thrown on the creator's sort of potter's wheel, there's no life. Further, since according to Romans 5, it is at the fall in Genesis 3 that death first enters the creation, you can't have ages and ages of life and death happening before Genesis 1 gets rolling. Unless Romans 5 misunderstands Genesis 3. There's a problem. Now the gap theory was popularized most regrettably through the middle part of the 20th century in the notes for the Schofield Reference Bible. The Schofield Reference Bible is one of the most influential evangelical sources through the middle part of the 20th century. I grew up in a Baptist church. Our Baptist publishing house used to be called Broadman Press. For those of you who are longtime Baptist babies as I am, you remember the name, Baptist Press. And we used to make fun of an old hymn in church when I was a kid. We would pretend to sing, my hope is built on nothing less than Schofield's Notes and Broadman Press. I mean, Schofield held a place. But you, you cannot affirm, and we'll look at Romans 5 in a few minutes, you cannot affirm Romans 5's understanding of Genesis 3 and affirm the gap theory. Those are incompatible. They don't live together well. And then the day-age theory. Oh my, the day-age theory. Oh no, 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 I believe Genesis 1 to be true. I do. But there's no way they're just actual days. We'll talk more about this next week. They're not actually, they're long, long spans of time. Now, the story of God doing it is a lovely and true story, but those aren't days. Those are long ages of time. Okay, all right. There's a tiny little problem, well, various tiny little problems with that, but let me point out one. On day three, God makes plants. And they emerge, mature, bearing fruit after their kind. But it's not until days five and possibly day six that he creates what's necessary to pollinate those plants. And without pollination, those plants are dead in a generation. So if day three is an age of plants without pollinators, you can't make it through the age to get to when the pollinators emerge. And when you point that out to a day-age theorist, here's what they'll do. They'll say, well, now hold on. You can't really take all of it, all that literally, to which I respond gently and lovingly, aha. So it's okay with you if the whole thing unravels as one great big muddy myth. Because once you start pulling the threads, you see, the whole sleeves come off. It's a 
age theory doesn't really hold together very well either, except as the entry drug to rejecting the truthfulness of the whole chapter. Why does it matter? Roman numeral three, foundations. The foundation stone set in Genesis. The creation, the fall, the flood, the Tower of Babel. Let's talk about them. Creation, letter A. This, this truth that God created, and God created as he describes himself as creating, that is a foundation of God's relationship of all things. Revelation chapter four, verse 11. At the end of things, one of the songs sung before the lamb on the throne, this one by the elders. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. What you believe about creation is linked into what you believe about Jesus. John 1, 1 and 2 affirms that in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He created everything. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Colossians 1, 16 through 17. For by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I had a conversation over in our own fellowship hall some years ago. I think I've told this story before. There was a gentleman at the time, a member of our church, long since not so now, at the time, a member of our church, and uh, he, he had, I had taught a, a creationism course on Wednesday evenings, and he had, he had come to that course, and he had made it clear to me that he believed that there were, there were human-like things for generations and generations and generations of evolution before we finally got to Adam and Eve. And so he approached me in Fellowship Hall, as I recall, one Sunday morning in a fairly public place, asked me, did I still believe in this, this silliness of Adam and Eve being created, human being 1.0 out of dust in the Garden of Eden? And I said, I kind of do. And he said, well, science says this and loves of that. And I, don't know. and I said, well, let me ask you something. Uh, Jesus in Matthew 19.4 says that in the beginning, God created them male and female talking about clearly about Adam and Eve and a lesson on marriage. Jesus built his lesson on marriage on the thesis of created order as described in Genesis. In the beginning, God created human beings, male and female, at the beginning. And that's, how, you know, that's what Jesus said. And his response, I'll never forget it, it's written in fire on my memory. His response was, well, <laughs> that's how Jesus would have understood it. Good for you that you're groaning. Because I said to that friend, whom I will not call a brother, I said to that friend, sir, whatever it is you believe, it's not Christianity. Because you have taken the creator of heaven and earth and all that in them is and reduced him to a student of his times. No. No. What you believe about creation is linked to what you believe about Jesus and his role to all things. The fall, 
The fall is where we learn about the foundation of mankind's need for redemption. Romans chapter 5. Writing in Romans, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and, through, and, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Verse 17, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned, from the fall on, death reigned through that one man. The Bible never describes, by the way, the death of plants as deaths. With all respect to those of you who are passionate about your plants, death is the cessation of animal or human life, and it can't happen till Adam sins. Or Romans 5 misunderstands the need for a savior. That's a consequence. We're dealing with foundations. It's hard to make the tower stand up straight when the foundation's 10 degrees off. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Adam and his sin paralleled with Christ and his redemption. Both are space-time, human history events. The fall, the flood, the foundation of righteousness and judgment and deliverance. Matthew 24, verses 38. I'll actually start back in verse 37. Matthew 4, 37 through 39, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. They were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. One event in history, one event in the future, both actual events. A cataclysmic world-destroying flood coming cataclysmic world-destroying judgment. The Tower of Babel is the foundation for mankind's different linguistic and cultural groups. It all begins at the Tower of, of Babel in terms of the divergence of mankind. God is sovereign over that divergence, though Paul does not mention the Tower of Babel. He has the Tower of Babel in mind almost certainly when in uh, Acts 17, 26, Teaching in Athens, he says, and he, God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Before I share one concluding thought, I want to point out the list of resources that I've given. I had one, one dear, dear gentleman sitting by his wife right, right around in here before the first service talking about some stuff we had recommended back in our Jude study in along that time anyway. He said, my wife buys me every resource you recommend. And I said, brother, I'm sorry. I think I've spent between 150 and $200 of your money this morning then. Maybe you can get some of these on Kindle and not spend that much. But I want to recommend to you the five resources that I have on the outline. These, are, these don't appear here by accident. These are five of so, so many, but I think they're five good introductory resources that if you've not thought about the consequential character of how you biblically view origins, these are a great place for you to start your consideration. A magnum opus, a great work, it ought to be on every Christian's bookshelf, is the Genesis Flood by Whitcomb and Morris. 
It's 50 years old now, maybe 60, closer to 60. It is a fantastic work. Both Whitcomb and Morris hold, hold degrees, PhDs in the natural sciences, are held PhDs in the natural sciences. They take the position that the flood happened when God said it did, as God said it did, with the impact God said it had. The Genesis flood is a remarkable work. Some of you in these days are, are fans of Ken Ham and Answers in Genesis. I don't blame you. Ken Ham will tell you that Answers in Genesis and his own ministry would not exist were it not for Whitcomb and Morris. So if you want to go back to some, some really good stuff... Uh, the Genesis Record is a second work Morris wrote. It's sort of the Genesis Flood, Volume 2. It's more of a theological commentary from a natural sciences perspective on the book of Genesis. If you think you have questions, the Genesis Flood is a place where a person with an honest person with honest questions should read the Genesis Flood and the Genesis Record. Much more modern work, more of a devotional work, is Creation to Babel. Genesis 1 through 11 by Ken Ham. It's more of a, a family devotional guide to these first 11 chapters of Genesis. If you, sir, want to walk your family through a study that will generally parallel where we're going in these months here, Ham's Creation to Babel is an excellent work. If you want to dive into the philosophical and theological underpinnings of why these chapters matter so terribly, terribly much and how you view these chapters matters so terribly, terribly much, I can recommend nothing more highly than The Battle for the Beginning by John MacArthur. It is an excellent work. Somebody said to me a while ago, do you agree with every word MacArthur ever wrote? I want to clarify, I don't agree with every word Russell ever wrote. But I find John MacArthur to be a trustworthy Bible teacher, and the battle for the beginnings is a great resource. And then finally, I alluded earlier to Dr. David Skinner and his Graf Wellhausen joke. I did not know this book, The Common Studies in Genesis by Skinner, was even available beyond just getting it from the seminary where I graduated. I spotted it on Amazon. If I can find it on Amazon, so can you. It's a great, great work. All right, here's the final takeaway this morning, and I'm done. The Word of God tells one story. The grand narrative of Scripture hangs on the spine of a central story of the creation, fall, redemption of man, restoration of that fallen universe. It's one story. And that story is utterly, eternally, and consequentially true and trustworthy as your Bible tells it in all of its parts. And it is a passion of my heart that you would believe John chapters 1, 2, and 3 and Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. And Colossians 1, 2, and 3, and Romans 1, 2, and 3, with equal passion. See, we fell. Satan began his dance of doom in the Garden of Eden by asking, now did, wait a minute, wait a minute, did God really say that? His tactics have not changed. And for those of us who have come to faith in Christ. It's because we have turned from our sin and trusted Jesus Christ and his redemptive work by faith to reverse the effects 
which we inherited from the historical fall of mankind in the Garden of Eden. Jesus did not die on the cross to reverse a myth. And this morning, if you have not yet come to faith in Christ, it is not a myth that will condemn you eternally. It is your inherited condition which has worked out in your behavior. Come to Jesus. Trust the one who is trustworthy for the forgiveness of your sin, the state of your soul.